Hi listeners and welcome to Reasonable Unnecessary, where Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know related to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaporis, and today we're talking about the NDIS and transport. If you want to know how the NDIS can fund your transport needs, please stay tuned. We will also delve into recent case law, so we can see what has happened when participants have challenged NDIS transport funding decisions. With me today is Chris Thwaites, Legal Advocacy Lead at the Summer Foundation. How are you, Chris? I'm great, George. How are you? I'm pretty well, thank you. G'day, listeners. So today we're going to talk about NDIS and transport, and I understand that's one of your favourite topics. It is. Um, it's complex. It's really started to make the uh, agency think about how the Act works. Transport pretty well influences or has an impact on lots of people. Lots of people have to travel to get to services. It's a pretty standard thing to require about people moving around in the community. So I think it affects a lot of people. And also I think that it's one of those um, issues that has for a long time been um, debated as as something that people should have a right to. And, and for a long time people with disabilities have had have a lot of issues when it comes to transport. So we're all looking at the NDIS as a way of solving it. Absolutely. And look, in um, modern society, participation nearly always goes with the, the ability to travel or move around because that's what participation is about in the community in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Okay, so let, let's, um, let's start maybe with uh, looking at some of the information that the NDIS provides about how it will fund transport. And um, there are a couple of fact sheets that are available. Well, there's one fact sheet that's available in various formats um, that people can check out. And it's a pretty straightforward piece of communication. And it says that a participant will generally be able to access funding through the NDIS for transport assistance if the participant cannot use public transport without substantial difficulty due to their disability. What, what, what does that mean in terms of substantial difficulty? Well, you know, that's a, a, a case for um, case by case basis, but that tends to be the gateway in relation to getting funding. It's about whether you can use transport without substantial difficulty in relation to public transport. So it's about whether you can get onto public transport, get onto trains, get onto buses. And do you think that that is um, something that could be easily proven or could it be in some way um, a little bit uh, borderline or debatable? Well, there is a bit of a grey area, I suppose, around super stops and being able to get onto some forms of public transport in some areas in relation, whereas opposed to other areas, it's less accessible because of the nature of the environment that's built around the, the public transport. But a lot of issues around this could easily be supported by some of the specialty reports that you have um, supporting any sort of application to the NDIS or the NDIA, I should say. And it's interesting because um, when the NDIS um, was introduced, it meant that 
once you receive a, um, a plan and your plan is activated, um, you will lose the mobility allowance. And mobility allowance has the same requirement. So it says that you must um, have substantial difficulty to use public transport. So I guess it's partly trying to align the former um, funding subsidy that was the mobility allowance with what is now um, a funded support in someone's package. Yeah, and that um, that links with the no disadvantage test as well. You should be able to move, in theory, seamlessly from um, state-based funding to, to the NDIA funding. All right, and the second part um, of the fact sheet said that funding takes into account any relevant taxi subsidy scheme. It does not cover transport assistance for carers to transport their family member with a disability for everyday commitment. Oh, that's a bit, that's a bit controversial. Yeah, I think it is controversial. Again, it's the last part. That last part around whether it will it will not cover transport assistance for carers to transport their family members with a dis disability for everyday commitments. And that comes back to some of the things that we've talked about before in relation to reasonable and necessary and what everyday commitments are and how that works together. And reasonable and necessary, as we've talked before, has to be directly relinked to the disability and the goals and, and, and in their in people's plans and not everyday activities so maybe that's where that links and maybe yes maybe an example could be that you know if you have a, a child um parents would generally take their child to swimming lessons um they wouldn't expect the government to pay for that travel um so if you have a disability um parents would in some way have the same responsibilities. Yeah, and that's what the Act and the, and the rules are trying to get at, really, about what's reasonable to expect family supports and community supports to provide, and they won't fund those sort of things. It's going to be things over and above that, specifically related to a person's disability. Yeah, and I just people need to keep that in mind when they're looking at their own circumstances. So if you're an adult um, yeah, versus a child, uh, you'd have, I guess, greater um, expectations around the transport supports that you could expect. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's supposed to be a case-by-case -case basis, so we'll look at your current circumstances and your environment around that, but definitely moving into adulthood and moving into um, independent living has a different sort of aspect to those sort of things. Mm. Okay, the other thing that people um, could learn from the fact sheet is that there's, um, that the NDS is effectively defined at three levels of transport support. And these levels range from $1,606 a year to $3,456 a year at level three. And the way they've sort of differentiated it um, has been really around whether or not they're in employment. Yeah, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting piece of work. This uh, fact sheet it does um, provide three levels or outlines three levels of funding, and as you read it, it seems to have the lowest level of funding for people who are not working or studying and attending 
day programs, but it's seeking to enhance their community access. So I assume it's the enhance the community access that, that attracts the lower level of funding rather than having to travel for your work or study as well. And I'm thinking that 1600 a year, that's not going to get you very far, is it? Well, depending on <laughs> where you live as well, it's not going to get you many trips at all, is well, it? Well, you know, it's a taxi of $50, you know, to get anywhere really. Um, we know that Uber's not terribly accessible. Um, yeah, you're, you're not really left with a lot there. Yeah, so that's what I find one of the, a number of things I find odd about this uh, fact sheet is it's not really, it, it doesn't take into the nuance of where people might be living and how far they might have to travel mm -hmm. in relation to even get to the um, basics of um, uh, seeking to enhance community participation and access. It does look like a very blunt instrument, doesn't it? It looks like a very blunt instrument. But like all blunt instrument, there's a uh, nice little bit at the end that says that there are some um, participants who would receive higher funding um, you know, if either general or funded supports in that plan are there to enable their participation in the employment. So they're really shutting the door to anyone who's not currently in employment and they're saying that, that that's basically all you're going to get unless you, you have a job. Yeah, employment seems to be the big thing in this fact sheet. It seems to be what they attach um, the type of funding to and even for exceptional circumstances what they attach the type of funding to. It's interesting, some of the previous um, versions of this fact sheet had um, a limit on even what exceptional circumstances would go up to. A couple of years ago it said it would uh, it would take a limit up to $6,000. Mm -hmm. So they seem to have dropped that for some reason. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that, now that we've sort of looked at what the NDS um, has provided and the three levels, um, let, let's, let's talk a bit about um, how these uh, funding applications have been challenged um, in case law. Now, um, I understand that uh, there's one particular case that you're particularly um, fascinated by, Chris, and that's the McGarrigal case. Yeah, that's right, George. So the McGarrigal case came down last year um, as a, a single judge of the federal court. So um, the background to this case was that Liam McGarrigal, who lives about, as far as I remember, about 25 or 30 kilometres outside Geelong. Um, he was a participant in um, the NDIS and his first plan paid for the transport costs for him to get to his work and to a group program um, over the week. His second um, uh, plan... And how high was the funding for the... First plan, I remember reading it was quite substantial. It was substantial, especially in light of that fact sheet that we... Yeah, it was, I think it was around the 14,000. Yeah, eventually it was. So it started around the 10,000 mark. The second, um, the second plan was up because of the nature of just increasing transport costs was up around the 12 or 13 um, thousand dollar mark and then the final one was up around the 15 just over fifteen thousand dollars so he got um, full funding for the first two plans for all of his transport costs in relation to that and then when he came to his third plan the agency decided 
um, while these are the while these are the costs for the um, for the transport that we paid for before, we're only going to pay fifty point eight percent was the initial decision. Percent of those. Well, how that came to the point eight? It seems to be um, a bit of a mystery. No one can quite work out how it got to fifty point eight. Um, so what happened was what um, uh, what happened was they asked for an internal review of that decision, and the internal review came back and said um, that it's not reasonable to ask for his family to pick up that extra amount. Um, so they'll up the uh, amount that they will cover, and they ended up covering seventy five percent of the full costs. And that was through the appeals process. That was the appeals. Pro that was an internal review. So their initial the initial decision was for the 50.8% and then the internal review upped that to 75% of the total cost. Okay. And they weren't happy with that, were they? They were not happy with that. Um, and you can understand why. When I say they, I mean the, the family. The family. Yeah. So you can understand why. In the previous um, plans, they've been fully funded for this, these transport costs and suddenly in the third plan, it um, started to get a percentage of it even though the, the costs had been going up. Um, so they took the matter to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, Legal Aid helped them with that and helped represent them with that. And um, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal looked at that decision. So they're now looking at the decision to say, we'll fund 75% of what is um, acknowledged as um, the total cost. And so the tribunal looked at that and they said, no, we think that's about right. 75% taking into account um, uh, the circumstances of the family around Liam um, and so the tribunal decided that 75% was about right as well. Okay, so they probably would have felt a bit deflated by that but they, they weren't going to be beaten, were they? they? They went one step higher. They weren't going to be beaten, they took the matter to the federal court and again legal aid was involved in that, in that matter um, and that matter was heard in front of uh, Justice Mortimer, a single uh, judge of the federal court, and in March 2017, she handed down her decision. So interesting decision. It's on the federal court website, and she basically said... Can I just say something around that? I remember when um, that case um, was first announced, and um, there was so much excitement in the, uh, in the advocacy world because... Um, that was a really, oh, yeah, I hate the word brave, but let me just use it. It's pretty brave to take it all the way to the, the High Court, uh, sorry, the Federal Court, um, and then to get that outcome, um, saying to the NDIS, yeah, that, that, that they were wrong. Yep. Um, yeah, it was pretty exciting amongst us advocates. Absolutely, and it shows the efficacy of going through the appeals process. but. You also got to recognise that that's hard work. You're pushing it all the way up. So um, good on the people who who really pushed this as far as they could up there to get the right sort of decision. But that's how the appeals processes work. And in this and in this regard, um, the McGarrigals got the decision that they wanted, which was great because it set a precedent on how transport should be approached. The issue of transport should be approached. And this would have. We'll talk a bit about the. Um the details of the of the decision by Mortimer, but this this would have really freaked out the NDI a bit, do you think, in terms of saying to them, hang on a minute? 
Yeah, I think, you know, around transport and the costs of transport, people always start to think about what the, how the costs are going to build up and how, and how it's going to be afforded and how the NDI budget's going to be affected by transport decisions across the board for people because they're not insubstantial sums. So I think there's always that sort of um, uh, concern about how, how these costs are going to be covered or whether that's going to blow the budget out. Oh, that's right. So let's talk a bit about the decision. Um, we'll get a bit legalistic now and, and give us the 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 guts of what the what the decision made it says for, for people with respect to their funding. My favourite thing's getting legalistic, George. Oh, but, um, I know. <laughs> get very excited. I get very excited about these sort of things. But basically, the decision um, looks at how you read the act specifically one of my favourite sections of the Act, which we've talked about before, which is Section 34, and how that's approached, especially when you're looking at transport. So it talks about how you approach um, decision-making around what is reasonable and necessary, and whether you look, and it's a good decision because there are good arguments on both sides about whether you, one, look at uh, what is reasonable and necessary and how that should be funded, or whether you look at something being reasonable and necessary without taking into account the funding capacity of that those people and whether that should be a percentage in relation to the funding that's provided for reasonable and necessary support. So that sounds a bit complicated, but basically it's about how the section is drafted and it talks about f um, funded supports and so Justice Mortimer looked at the wording of the section and said, well, you have to have a look at all those things that we've talked about before in relation to Section 34 about what is a reasonable and necessary support. But once you come to the conclusion that it's a reasonable and necessary support, then that's your job done. That's that's what's done. That's mm. what needs to be funded because the top of the section says funded. Just get on with it. And just get on with it. The department, um, in, in its arguments, said no, no, because part of the consideration of reasonable and necessary is what parents and the community can provide. And so you've got to take that into consideration and that's how you can say it's a reasonable and necessary support, but the community or the family can provide some of that so you don't have to fully fund it. So you've got two opposing arguments. Two opposing arguments. And in this case it landed in favour of... Um, the the McGowell family. Can you just maybe help us understand um, how do you think that went in their direction as opposed to the reasonable necessary argument put forward by? Because I, in some way I can see that um, both arguments do have um, merit in terms of saying that you know, the family um, could be seen as having some capacity. Um, but um, how old is um, Liam? I, I think he's... Yeah, I think he's 20. So, I don't know, but I, I think that for an ordinary family, it would be not necessarily expected that mum and dad would drive around their 20-something-old son um, and that it would be entirely um, appropriate for them to say, hang on, that, that's, that's not our responsibility anymore. 
Yeah, that's true. And, and some of the arguments that were run extrapolated that, saying, well, you know, if, if, if you can say a support is a reasonable and necessary support, but qualify that by saying, but somebody else has to pay for part of that support, then in a way you're introducing a means test mm. um, by the back door. We all know that the NDIS and the NDIA is means tested. But if you're saying, well, you can get these supports, but somebody has to be able to um, afford to pay for some of them, mm. then it is a way of introducing a sort of means test from the... Yes, and I read that in the case that it said that we, we need to not think about um, what the family could afford because the whole idea is that it's not about putting the cost onto the person or the family. And that really, um, you know, if you extrapolate that, and this is what the judge thought about, if you extrapolate going down that way of making these decisions, you expose a participant to the vagaries of what their family might decide they want to do for them. So they might miss out on the support altogether if the family just decides, well, we're not going to participate, we're not going to put in any funding for this, or we're not going to drive you anywhere. And so they might miss out on the support entirely, depending on what the family's approach to it is. And I think that was also one of the things that helped drive the other argument that it shouldn't be at the um, capacity or the whimsy of other types of support in order to get these supports that have already been deemed to be reasonable and necessary. Okay, so it landed on on the side of the um, the family and person with a disability. Can we then think about what the, what the what are the consequences or the uh, effectively what does this say for um, other people who might be listening who might think that they didn't get all the funding that, that they were entitled to. There's, I'm sure there were some implications here. Yeah, well, just to follow up, the um, department appealed, um, and that um, appeal went to the full court of the federal court, which is three judges, and they heard that in August this year and dismissed the appeal and sent it back to the AAT. So they have indicated that they think the decision was correct as to law, and so the McGarrigal matter is now back at the AAT and the appeals court has suggested that it should be heard by a three-member panel at the AAT, including the president. So that decision is still at the AAT. That's really interesting. So um, does that mean that, that, they, um, that they won again did, did, in terms of the family, it feels like? Yeah, generally speaking. So the appeal grounds that were put to the fe uh, full federal court were dismissed. So the full federal court said, no, you don't have the, you know, we don't think that these appeal grounds are going to be successful, so we're not going to hear the appeal. And the matter goes back to the AAT to decide as to law, because the current decision made by, remember, there was two decisions made by the agency. One was funded by, by at a 50.8% um, amount, and then they did the 75% on internal review. Now that decision is again in front of the AAT with the federal court's decision, Justice Mortimer's decision saying, no, this is the way you have to do it. And so you need to have another look at that and do it according to the the full events of the federal court just uphold the and and the matter was done? Like, it feels like we're in a cycle of, 
yeah. of, of um, you know, warrior heaven, but participant in agency hell, really. Um, it, it feels like it's not really working if it's now going back to be heard at the AAT. Well, it might sound like it's not really working, but that's the nature of the appeals process. That's how they do it. So the federal court will say, this is what the law is and this is how it should be applied. They will rarely then say, therefore, this is what the decision is. They will say, the decision maker underneath us either got the law wrong or applied it wrong. You've got to go back and do it properly. Wow. And then what? And so then they'll, there'll be a decision of the AAT. So I haven't been able to find out when that will be, but this matter is now back at the AAT and there'll be a decision of the AAT and whether the McGarrigals get the decision that they want or they don't, then they get an option to pursue that further. And when does it go to the High Court? Well, <laughs> that's, that's so the High Court's at the <laughs> top of that tree. So there's the, so let's start from the agency. There's the original decision in the agency and then there's the review, the internal review of the agency, and then there's the AAT, and then there's the federal court, usually a single judge of the federal court, and then there's the full federal court, which is a number of judges sitting on it, and then there's the high court. So there's a whole raft of levels. And why didn't that go from the full, from the, from the, um, full bench of the federal court to the high court? Well, because the, the party that appealed, which was the, uh, the agency, was told your appeal grounds, we're not going to entertain your appeal grounds, oh, okay. so sent it back. So they're, so they're now all back at the AAT. So I know that sounds like lawyer heaven and doesn't get, um, get us very far in relation to people on the ground and getting decisions made, but you, the agency will be taking notice of Justice Mortimer's decision the agency will be looking at the decision reasons and saying, okay, well, this is the way we have to apply it. Can we just step back then? Because that, that's, a, that's a pretty um, long process that the, the families has gone through. Do you think that there'd be a lot of people listening that will think, oh, wow, that's just, that's too much for me. Like, it feels like the, the NDA has won because there's still all this work that's gone into it and and yet there's still no outcome for, for the person and their family. Yeah, look, there, there, there's no getting away from um, how exhausting the appeals processes can be. But these headline cases, so this is a relatively new act and a new agency and how they're supposed to apply the law. And so these headline cases, these new cases that are really setting down what the, what the courts are saying, what the law is and how it should be applied, are the ones that are going to take some time to figure out and through. But once they've settled, once the appeal process is settled and the law is settled, then how that is applied goes back to the agency and they will start applying the law as it's been set out by the way the court said it should be set out. So while the McGarrigal family is going through this and all power to them really, um, it will help everybody else that's coming behind them in relation to the decisions that they get. So that's the message is, it's a lot of work, yep. but we're in the early, early, very early stages of the scheme, which yep. in theory will continue for a couple of hundred years or until they're robots that sort of do all this thing. <laughs> Driverless vehicles and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, so that's important. Uh, if you think something's not there or something's not um, in accordance with the NDIS Act, yep. you need to speak up and, and appeal it. Yeah, absolutely. So if people look at that fact sheet that we were talking about at the start, which has three different levels of it, and if that works for you and if that's the decision you get, great. But if it's not, and if you think that there's something that you should be receiving more, then you've got you've got options to ask for that decision to be reviewed. And it might be a long fight, but it's worth having because it will set the, the foundation for, for people that will follow. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. It's been really uh, helpful. Oh, thanks, George. I know it was a long way around, but uh, there's some really interesting happening, things happening in this area, so keep an eye on it. Thanks. Thanks, mate. And that's all we have time for on today's podcast of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Follow us on Facebook at Building Better Lives. You'll be able to access a transcript there and also keep up to date with our latest info on the NDIS. Well, sadly, this is our final podcast in this series. However, keep your eyes on our Facebook page for Series 2 coming to you shortly. I'm Dr. George. Until next time, stay well and reasonable.